I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas. It's a show where readers meet writers. The California of Jane Smiley's new novel is one of verdant pine forests, gold seekers from around the world, and raw, endless possibility. It's the 1850s in Monterey, and a young widow is supporting herself in a manner that would shock her covenanter parents back in Michigan. Eliza is also using the power of observation and an interest in detective stories to unravel a mystery that could endanger her life. Jane Smiley is the author of many novels and books of nonfiction. She won the Pulitzer Prize for A Thousand Acres, and her new novel is titled A Dangerous Business, and she joins us from California. Welcome. It's good to talk to you again. Thank you. Yes, it's always fun. So I thought I sensed a yearning or a nostalgia in your prose for a kind of untouched California. I mean, you write about these pine (laughs) and oak forests of Monterey and the birds that soar over the bay. Am I I sensing that correctly? Well, you know, there... There's a certain quality about the Monterey Peninsula that remains untouched. If you walk down, there's a big mall where there's a Macy's and all those stores, you know, and if you walk maybe for 10 minutes from there, you're in the middle of nowhere. And there's plenty of places to walk and um, plenty of places that you thought you'd seen, but you hadn't because you'd, you'd come at a different time of day or a different time of year. So it's a wonderful mix of nature and society and um, beautiful architecture from the 1850s. So, you know, I feel really lucky to be here. You know, this is one of the things that Eliza and her colleague and friend do. They walk the city. They walk the Mm -hmm. peninsula. A lot. It sounds like you still do that too. Oh, I do. Yeah. Um, yesterday, day before, it's just way too interesting to stop. <laughs> I mean, that's what happens with Eliza too, right? She just keeps yeah. going. What What makes it way too interesting to stop? Because every time you come around a corner, there's something different. And you look up the hill and you think, well, I could I could get up at least to there and see the view. And then you get up there and you see the view and you think, well, there's an, huh, there's another spot I could get to. I mean, there are plenty of times where I'm gasping trying to get up a hill, um, but I just go anyway and hope for the best. And, And you've been there for how long? Because it sounds like you still see this landscape with a lot of, with fresh eyes. Well, I've been here for about 25 years. And is that right? I mean, do you still kind of look around and feel like I see new things? It's, this is kind of revealing in a way that maybe you wouldn't expect after so long. It just is always changing with the seasons. Um, there, there are plenty of places when I look out the window of my house, there's a, a set of mountains over there and, uh, and ridges, and, and there's plenty of them you can't get to. And so, you know, you're always thinking, okay, how does the path go up there? And can I make that? I don't know. 
And there are plenty yeah. of people out on the paths and um, looking around and plenty of people at the beaches. You know, the beaches are always changing and um, the the waves are always changing. So it's a place where you you really sense the world transforming itself over and over and over again. Give us kind of your portrait of Eliza, your central character, and then I have a I have a number of questions about how you conceived and shaped okay. her. But how would you describe her? Well, she grew up in in Michigan and she was very confined. She's an only child and her parents are extremely religious. And as she grows up, she senses that there's a larger world out there, but she can't figure out a way to get to it. Mm-hmm. And then when she's 18, her parents marry her off to someone they think ha- is the same religion as they are and um, has some money. Um, but he isn't what he has pretended to be. And he decides he's going to head to California for the gold rush, and he's going to take Eliza with him. But just like his the parents, he's very possessive. He doesn't let her do what she wants. And she sort of doesn't know how not to obey. Um, she goes with him, and she gets, they get to Monterey, which, is, which had been the state capital for about a year and is fairly prosperous and is maybe much more, I don't know, uh, much more interesting than where she came from in Michigan. One of her problems with her parents is that she has what we would call a crush on a local boy, but he's Irish and he's Catholic and his parents, her parents do not want her to get involved with him. Hmm. So um, Peter, that's the husband, he takes her to California. He gets into a bar fight and he gets shot. And then she's, and he's kept her fairly confined for the several months that they've been in Monterey. So she really doesn't have, doesn't know anything. She's now about 21. And we can imagine uh, someone just emerging from uh, a you know, what you might call a prison mm-hmm. and looking around and saying both, I've got to figure out what to do here. And gee, I'd like a look around. Now a woman comes up to her and gives her um, a card and says, if you need any, if you need anything, please contact me. And Eliza starts to run out of her money. Her, her her husband didn't have very much money, but there is a little bit. But she start, it starts to run low. So she thinks she's going to go to this woman and um, maybe borrow some money and then take it step by step. <laughs> she's naive. <laughs> <laughs> oh, terribly. The, right. The experienced reader. She's curious. It's, <laughs> right. it's not her fault that she's naive. I mean, she, the experienced reader knows exactly what this is, and <laughs> it's fun to see this unfold. Okay, here's, I puzzled a little bit over Eliza's temperament. She, she's remarkably, I, I thought she was remarkably practical uh, about <laughs> supporting herself in what turns out to be a brothel. That's the help that she's being offered. Mm-hmm. But she, you know, she, 
she doesn't seem to anguish over any of the kinds of things I would think a 21-year-old girl would. I mean, the distance from her parents, who, yes, she was happy to get yeah, away from the death of her husband. She wants to get away from them. Yeah. Okay, she yeah. wants to get away from the parents. Uh, okay, the death of the husband, abusive jerk. But even the danger that she starts to realize that she's putting herself in. So, so what do you think of my description as her as kind of precociously practical? <laughs> Does that fit? <laughs> I think so. And But I would also say that she's too naive to know what the real dangers are. And then yeah. when she goes to work in the brothel, um, Mrs. Parks is very good toward the girls, much much nicer toward um, Eliza than her mother has been. And she also makes sure that the girls are, are as safe as she can make them. And then one of the things that Eliza discovers when she starts, and she knows how to do this because her husband, because of her husband, one of the things she discovers is that the the men who come in for her servicing are nicer to her than her husband was. <laughs> and so yeah. she doesn't she doesn't fear them and she learns from them and she learns about, you know, that that men have a positive side. And so she believes that. You know, she reminded me, I read your novel Private Life um a couple years ago. And she reminded me, Eliza there's reminds only one me. Of, there's only one of you. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? Um, I actually am very fond of that novel, but it didn't have a lot of readers. What? Is that really true? <laughs> no, that's what you meant? I don't believe that. <laughs> what? I don't know. I don't pay attention. Okay, but why? But- well, uh, okay, well, let me say this, and then you can then you can tell me why that might be. She reminded me a little bit of Margaret Mayfield because she's, mm-hmm. you know, Eliza is accepting of the place that she finds herself in, and and then what she's going to have to do, you know, about it to deal with mm-hmm. it. Did, does that make sense? Yeah. Well, they both are raised in um, f- private, fairly private households and they both are taken uh they both end up in California because their husbands take them there so they both and they both are married to weirdos yeah yes um now i would say that um the the husband in uh private life isn't intentionally cruel or anything like that he's just uh, um a very self-obsessed nerd, <laughs> and he's he doesn't strange. want to. Yeah, he's strange. He doesn't want to be unkind to her. He just is obsessed with his own theorizing and his own ideas about the universe, and so she's sort of left on her own to explore uh, the area up around Northern California where they live. But he doesn't stop her or anything like that. Right. Yeah. Um, so I, there's there's something that interests you about women's choices in these in these mm-hmm. situations. What what is it? How do you explore 
how do you satisfy your curiosity? Um, If you haven't had much of an education, if you haven't been allowed to get out and about, how do you discover, you know, the, the good things about life? And I guess that would be what interests me about these women. How do they come to know who they are and come to just assert themselves and be who they want to be and do what they want to do? I mean, that's what interested me about Margaret Mayfield, too, is this sense that that kind of exploration and curiosity is uh, subversive in a way, certainly not encouraged, right, in the years that these (laughs) women lived, and yet they find a way. Well, one of the things that's true of both of them is that they don't have any children. Now, Margaret, she gets pregnant, but because she's um, type O negative, the she has those blood those blood problems that lead to the the death of the baby, and then she can't get pregnant again, and so. Um, so she basically doesn't have much to do with her life except explore. And the place where she lives, which is up in Vallejo, um, which is a naval, essentially a naval base, um, that's an interesting place for her to explore. She's from central Missouri, and she uh, gets to this really interesting place, and she meets a lot of fascinating people. And so she gets to explore. Um, Eliza has to explore because she has to figure out where she is, how she's going to make it. And then she meets Jean. And Jean is a naturally curious person and also quite a brave person. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so once she meets Jean, Jean helps her figure things out, helps her go various places. One of my favorite bits is when they walk down to the Carmel mission and they, and Eliza can barely walk up the hill and Jean basically trots up the hill because she's so used to moving and getting around and being independent. So the two of them are two types of women, one who's very self-confident and athletic and does what she wants to do and the other one who's naive but well-intended and and also observant. You know, I also got the sense that you were thinking about the nature, the character of this friendship between mm-hmm. these women. And it ends up being really important to Eliza. Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that right to say? Well, I would say that Jean is the first real friend that she's had. And and then as they decide to investigate these crimes um, of about uh, which concern other sex workers in the area, their friendship becomes tighter, and they really rely on one another for figuring things out. So um, their their friendship, they spend more time together. Um, they understand each other better, and they get 
well-connected. I wanted to ask you something about the Covenanters. I, I'd never heard of this this religious sect. When I looked up the history, I learned that they had broken away from King Charles I over a liturgy, liturgy that he tried to impose on the Church of Scotland. But what, what did you know about them before you put that in the novel? Well, they were Calvinists and um, they had a certain belief system. And one of the beliefs is that you, whatever your destiny is, it's already decided before you're born. And one of my favorite books about that is um, uh, there's a, a Scottish author who lived around the same time as um, Sir Walter Scott, whose name was James Hogg. And he wrote the memoirs and confessions of a justified sinner. And it's a very interesting and wonderful book. And it's about the, the religious ideas of covenantism. Um, and there were various religious wars concerning what, who, who's going to be the boss, as we all know. Um, and the covenanters remained firmly attached to the idea that um, this was the, that the true the true God was someone who already decided before you were born that whether you were saved or not. So, what what interests you about that idea? You've, it sounds like you've done a lot of reading. It about sounds it. it just seems crazy to me. <laughs> it does. <laughs> I mean, the logic of it is crazy, and yet I think that it makes people feel. Well, if you read the Hogg book, Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner, for some people, it will make you feel like you have to behave in order to demonstrate mm-hmm. that um, that you are saved. But for other people, it's an excuse, as is with the characters in the Hogg book, it's an excuse to do whatever you want because, you know, you're already saved, so it doesn't matter what you do. I mean, I always was, I, I did not grow up in a religious family, but once I was in college, I was fascinated by the various breakaways, um, hmm. starting with Lutheranism and then, you know, the others that followed that. And I just saw that as an interesting European phenomenon that then they exported to America because various mm-hmm. religious groups would go to very different places um, and take their, their um, feelings with them and their ideas with them. And that created conflict in America too. I mean, there are a couple of books. Um, one of them is um, American Nations by Colin Woodard. And he talks a lot about the religious how America was formed by the religious um, ideas that various groups from the UK brought with them and from other places too. And then another one is Albion Seed, which is a a little bit similar in the way that various peoples from different regions of the UK came here and in some sense tried to make the region that they settled in as much like what they came from as they could. 
<laughs> and so both of those books are really fascinating, and I learned a lot from both of them. So what, what do you think, what, what you've described that Covenanter um, philosophy as sounds like there really isn't free will and that that can be pretty comforting for some people. I think so. I think that's perfectly true. Um, but, you know, there's two sides. One side is, um, well, I have to prove that I am chosen. And so I have to behave in a certain way. And so do you, my child. I have to make you behave in a certain way so I can prove that you're chosen too because the community is staring at us and they're noticing by our behavior whether we're chosen or not. Mm-hmm. But then, as I said before, there's the other side, which is, well, if I'm chosen, then I'm chosen and I can do whatever I want. And, um, you know, I, it every every idea that religions have about who we are in our relationship to God ends up being confusing in some ways for the, um, for the people who believe in that religion. Right now I'm reading a Zola book um, and I cannot pronounce the French title, but it's about a, 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 a priest who's about 25 years old. And you can tell, I mean, it's the best 19th century book I've ever read about someone who's obsessed with religion. Hmm. And in the part that I'm at right now, um, you can see that his characteristic, you know, or perfectly natural 25-year-old sexuality is emerging when he stares at a statue of the Virgin Mary. He doesn't know what's happening. He doesn't know that sexuality is normal for him, and he's getting quite disturbed by his response to the Virgin Mary. And I'm I just am blown away. I mean, I love Zola. I loved all of his, I love a lot of his books, and I don't know why I never read this one before. But um it's it's really amazing how astute he is about this that what's going on in this guy's mind I, I mean what you said about you know the the requirements or the demands of the faith are often confusing to the people in the faith i mean isn't that part of the idea that if you remain <laughs> in somewhat of a state of confusion right unknowing <laughs> you will look to the rule i mean it's not that in some ways, again, I'll say I was raised in the Lutheran faith. This is nothing against faith. But in some ways, it's not that different from a totalitarian um, society where you must look to the leader for yeah. interpretation, right, and rules. As someone who was not raised in a faith, it's, it seems to me that it is about um, people, and usually men, looking upward and saying, oh, that guy up there, he's just like me. <laughs> oh, yeah. So if he can be all-powerful, I can be all-powerful. Oh, boy, this is permission. This is permission for me to be like him. 
And right. um, there's a lot. Of, I've I've read a lot of books about religion, and I can't remember the name of it. But one of them was a really interesting book about what happened to the goddesses. Yeah, I was just thinking this. I was yeah. just saying, yeah. There's a reason that it's mostly men who are interpreting, right? Yeah. The, yeah. And what the books say about that? Well, basically, it said that. Um, Judeo-Christian religion basically got rid of the goddesses mm-hmm. and and decided that um, they they were chosen. You know, now they they've never been able to agree about who was chosen, but this idea that I look up at him and he looks down at me and I'm chosen and I can look around at all the rest of you and say I'm chosen. <laughs> Um, that leads to conflict. It leads to it, it leads to emotional conflict, and it leads to conflict between um, various groups. And we can see that in the history of Judeo-Christian religions that that there's been this constant conflict about who's the chosen one on a large scale and on a small scale. I'm Carrie Miller. Uh, You're listening to my Friday book show, Big Books and Bold Ideas, and I'm in conversation with Jane Smiley, which is super interesting because our (laughs) discussion has gone (laughs) as it often does. Stop talking about the prostitute. I know. Are you kidding me? I know. We're coming back to that. (laughs) Don't worry. Uh, Our conversation has gone far afield, but in a really interesting way. Her new novel, she will want me to mention this, is titled (laughs) A Dangerous Business. And she's joining us today from her home in California. Uh, Before, I'm going to ask you to read an excerpt, and um, Mm -hmm. I want to get at a little bit about the mystery. Uh, But but you wrote your first murder mystery. Was it in 1984? Is that right? Yeah, around then, yeah. Duplicate Keys? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so why then, and then not for... Geez, a long time. I mean, is this, would you say, this is the second mystery after mm-hmm. Duplicate Keys, or have there been yeah. some in the middle? No, second one? this is the second one, yeah. Well, I, don't, I wrote Duplicate Keys for a specific reason, and that was because I knew um, already that I wanted to write The Greenlanders. Mm-hmm. And I also knew that The Greenlanders was going to be really long and really complicated. And so... I figured I had to learn how to make a plot and I would do that by writing a murder mystery. And when I grew up, I loved, loved, loved um, Agatha Christie. And so I thought, well, I've read so much Agatha Christie that I can, I can try it and see what I can do. (laughs) So that's why I wrote duplicate keys. So when I moved to California, I, I noticed that Joyce Carol Oates was writing various books. I think some of them were murder mysteries under yeah. uh, under a uh, pseudonym. And I thought, you know, it'd be really fun would be to write a mystery set in every county of California. And then I saw that there were 58 counties. <laughs> and I thought, uh-oh, I don't have time for that. But I figured that some of them a certain number of them would be historical and they'd be set in different counties 
And my first idea for a historical one would be a kind of counter-noir mystery set around Hollywood. Um, but then I love walking around Monterey. It's so beautiful. And the buildings from the 1850s are in wonderful condition. So I decided that the first historical one would be about uh, Monterey. And then I was walking around looking at Monterey history, and I noticed that there was evidence that there had been brothels. And I thought, ooh, that's a fun idea. And so I decided to write this one. Yeah, I was going to, I want to ask you something about what you said about the Greenlanders and knowing that it was going to be really long and complicated. I mean, is this, I assume that's without having kind of outlined or plotted out the novel yet, but you Mm -hmm. recognize that if you were going to go into this novel, that's, that's the path that you were on. Why? Well, the Greenlanders, when I was studying in, um, in graduate school, I was studying the Norse sagas. And there were several sagas about Greenland, um, about the founding of Greenland. But what fascinated me was what happened to those guys. Um, I mean, they lived there from basically, you would, I guess you would say, about the year 1000 um, until sometime uh, in the mid... 1400s. So they lived there for 400 years. And that fascinated me that they could live there in what we consider to be such a desolate spot. Mm-hmm. So I started looking at the history. <clears throat> and then I discovered about the medieval warm period and all of that. And there was pr- pretty much stuff about it, uh, about what it would have been like there. And I thought, okay, somebody needs to write about what happened, how the world ended. Now, obviously, I grew up during the the Cuban Missile Crisis and the whole sense that the world was ending. So that also, or the world might end, let me say. So that also was an aspect that fascinated me. What did it feel like if it actually ended? I also knew, <clears throat> I'm reading the sagas, that they were likely to have conflicts. So that would be part of the ending. But they were also likely to have, you know, when the Greenlanders lived there in the Middle Ages, they brought things, they, they, ships went back and forth. And there were things that the Greenlanders could bring to Europe, such as narwhal tusks that the European monarchs bought for tons and tons of money because they thought they were magical or they thought they were rare. So there was a period for the Greenlanders where they were very prosperous, but then then the weather changed all of that. And so I was curious about that, but I wanted it to take place over a long period of time. And so I knew that I had to have a figure out a way to make a storyline. And so that would be the plot line. Yeah. Now I see why you knew it was going to be really long and really complicated. <laughs> it's, yeah. a, it's a wide canvas with a lot of obs- somewhat obscure history mm-hmm. in it. Yeah. Um, okay, back to this novel and the brothels. 
And before you read this excerpt, you know, I, I thought this was, I thought a lot about the contemporary theme of missing women, many indigenous women, many women of color. And if they are sex workers or maids or in some, you know, lower echelon income of, um, of a professional life, there's not much interest in mm-hmm. what's happened to them. And I just wondered if that, that was something that you were thinking about um, as, as you kind of develop this mystery of what's happening to these women. Well, no, mostly it was historical because when I started trying to research what it would have been like in Monterey at that time, um, there were some interesting things about women. One of them was that men outnumbered women you know, probably 10 to seven or less. And the, mm-hmm. and the men were actually, I think because they outnumbered the women, they were actually pretty kind to the women. But at the same time, um, the police, or what we would call the police or the crime investigators, they were few and far between. There, were, um, there was a sheriff, but he didn't have much funding. And there were vigilantes, but they only paid attention if somebody who was important got killed. Mm-hmm. I mean, basically, the it was like the everything, the landscape and the gradual population of the landscape and the immigrants, they pretty much overwhelmed what we would call the infrastructure. And so the idea that they, somebody would investigate the deaths of some uh, prostitutes, it, it just, the girls realize that they're, nobody's going to do it. Yeah. I mean, it really isn't all that different than today, but yeah. Right. Uh, okay. So f- in this part of the novel, Eliza is doing some of this investigating on her own with her friends, with her friend. And she comes upon this house and it kind of, there's weird vibes emanating from it. <laughs> and she's caught smelling the roses. What else do you want to say about this scene? Well, I probably, one of the things that um, spurred me to write this scene was walking around in Monterey and smelling the roses. Ah, Okay. <laughs> because of the of the climate and the the passage of the year there's quite quite a lot of roses at very odd times i mean i noticed some roses the other day and i think that would have been something that roses would have been an imported plant and that would have been something that eliza couldn't resist um and i i see that all the time the beautiful when i walk around beautiful gardens that I just stop and stare at. Um, And so that's what I just imagined her doing. Okay. On each side of the veranda, someone had planted rose bushes, perhaps brought from the east. They were fairly tall and thick, with a few buds and a few spent blossoms, blossoms. Eliza went to give those a sniff, and it was a good thing she did because the handsome door creaked and then opened, and a woman stepped out, not the one young woman she had seen, but an older one. She was scowling. She said, 
You're here for a reason, girl. If not, go away. Eliza said, the only reason is I saw the roses. I missed those. I wanted a whiff. I apologize. The woman, the woman snorted and said, well, those are a pain in the neck, let me tell you. Then she waved her hand and Eliza obeyed, stepped off the veranda and continued up the street, holding her bag a little away from her skirt as if to say, we all have shopping to do. The woman went back into the building. There was something about the woman that unnerved her, though. At first, she thought it might be a resemblance to her mother, not in looks, but in demeanor, in the way she scowled, in the way her voice popped out of her, promising a whipping and then a prayer. Eliza had hated whippings, mild though they were, compared to ones that other children were suffering. But the prayer was worse. When her mother made made Eliza kneel beside her on the hard flooring and then detailed all of Eliza's sins, talking back, not coming when she was called, not dipping her head when they happened to see the pastor in the street, and her mother paused to chat with him, not closing her eyes when they said grace at the table. Maybe these memories had been waiting inside her since that fellow had reminded her the other day that she was damned. That was one of her customers. But Eliza also remembered that she had never believed what her her mother was saying, never believed that an all-knowing God would care about such matters because, for one thing, her mother said that God was male, and the only male she really knew, her father, was much more kindly than her mother. As she walked up the street, sidestepping the muck, she thought that her investigation might get her into trouble, that she might find out something that was a danger to her. She shivered and remembered her mother saying, curiosity killed the cat. When her mother first said this, Eliza at five had thought she meant the stray marmalade that she sometimes saw in the alley behind their house. And she'd gone out into her mother's garden and cried. But then the marmalade came sliding out from behind a tree and looked at her. Even so, her mother said it enough that Eliza was surprised that when she decided with Jean to investigate, it hadn't occurred to her. She shivered again and sped up. Jane Smiley reading from her new novel, A Dangerous Business. Uh, What do you think about on these walks that you take? And are they usually (laughs) solitary? Are you usually by yourself? Uh, yeah, they're usually solitary. I Mostly I think, wow, look at that tree. Or, wow, I don't want to fall into that ravine. Or, who's that guy? Once in a while, who's that guy? Oh, yeah. or lots of times, oh, isn't that the cutest dog? You know, there's just so many walks and there's so many. Sometimes I think I'm going to pass out because it's it's, it's a little steep. But most of the time, I just look around, I look at the clouds, I look at the trees, I look at the grass and the flower, wildflowers. There's one place, we have a park, and at a certain time of year, and usually in March or late February, they have what they call the loop and loop. And you can walk up and go through lots of patches of lupin, and they really smell wonderful. So that's a good one. <sighs> 
Wow. Oh, that sounds lovely. Okay, so I imagined, I love this description because you're you're really in the present and you're, you know, your senses are sharp and you're observing. But I guess I imagined you were working out the plots of your novels <laughs> or, <laughs> you know, um, well, you I were have spending time that, in your yeah. head on your book. Yeah. I have yes? to say that um, one thing is has always been true of either walking or riding horses. I write in the morning and then I, if I, I might come to a spot where I'm sort of scratching my head and lots of times on the walk, a, uh, an idea will come to me and I'll think, Oh, that's how to solve that problem. Or I should include that. So it's, it's generally true. Scientists have pointed out that when you get away from the thing you're doing and you're, distracted by nature or something else, then boom, the solution to whatever it was comes to you. And so mm-hmm. that, I get a lot of that too. There's also, isn't there something about your body being in movement and your mind free? Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's what I love about hiking and walking. Mm-hmm. Um, I just feel like I've unleashed you know, the, the strictures, right? Uh, not mm-hmm. even a problem, but just the way I might think if I was sitting in front of a computer or in the house. Yeah. Um, my, my thinking changes. And it sounds like yours does too. Yes, I have to say, I have to say the best thing that ever happened to me on a walk, we have a great walk in, around here. It's called the River Walk. It's not too steep. And it just goes along the, the other side of the Carmel River. And I was coming out of that walk, and I'd gone down the hill, and there were uh, two two young women on a horse. And the first thing I heard them talking about was someone said, "Oh, you know, I was really interested in that novel, and and um, and this character, Liddy, her name is." And I walked over to them and I said, "Are you talking about the all true travels and adventures of Liddy Newton?" And they said, yeah, yeah, have you read it? And I said, well, I wrote it. And they said, no, you didn't. <laughs> oh, I my said, gosh. yes, I did. And if it had been <clears throat> somebody talking about a thousand acres, I, I wouldn't have, I, I would have said, oh, okay. But Liddy Newton, are you kidding me? Somebody's reading that? <laughs> Young people are reading that? So that was kind of like this most, the most, wonderful sort of walking plus literary experience that I, mean, I ever had. That is thrilling and incredible. <laughs> yeah, it I is. thought so too. Okay, why why wouldn't you have said anything if they'd been talking about a thousand acres? Just because Oh I would have said so something. many people read. Okay, you would have said something. I yeah. would have said something. I just wouldn't have been that surprised. <laughs> you know <laughs> It's kind of like when I said I just read Private Life a couple. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you're the person. Um, <laughs> I, I want to ask you about something that uh, I spotted that you said. This is quite a while ago, but but it's intriguing. You, and you said this about writing and temperament. Most people have some kind of natural inborn temperament, and that dictates what they find most congenial to write about, I think. But if you really want to have a long and productive career – you have to work against your temperament a little bit and learn to do the things that you don't start out knowing. Explain what that has meant 
You said that about 10 years ago. Explain what that has meant in the, in the most recent part of your writing career. Well, I would say that the most natural thing to me about me is that writing, I just love to write. I grew up, I loved to read, then I learned to write, then I learned to spell, then I learned proper grammar. And I really, really wanted to write. Um, I probably by that I meant that what drew me in terms of writing at the beginning was always realistic novels about how people get along or what their families are like. And that still is what draws me. You know, I came from a gossipy family and what we gossiped about were, uh, family adventures or stories, and they were always made to be funny. Um, and so I think what comes easy, easy, easiest to me is novels that are gossipy about families that have um, at least some covert or overt humor. Mm-hmm. But the ones that I was curious about other forms, too. I was curious about novels that are harsher. I was curious about novels that are more fantastic. So I think early in my career, I wouldn't wouldn't ever have thought about writing um, Perestroika in Paris and having the animals talk, even though I love animals. Uh But I just got that idea and then I followed it up and it took a long time, but I enjoyed every minute of it. Um, So there are just some things like science fiction that don't come naturally to me, but it's fun to try it out. You know, it's fun to see what's going to happen. I wouldn't have written the Greenlanders if I hadn't taken so many years of old Norse and had those and we took it and we had to read the actual sagas in old Icelandic. Oh my gosh, what? And it it took <laughs> forever. Crazy. It took forever to learn and oh. I don't think I could read them now. I probably had forgotten a lot. But it in just put that language into my head and it made me curious about cuz language when you talk about something that's the way that you're experiencing it in your lifetime. So I wanted, when I did the Greenlanders, I really wanted to do as best I could to mimic what it felt like to the Greenlanders. Um, a good example is um, you, you might say in English, um, I thought about such and such. But if you did a literal translation of Old Icelandic, um, the the grammar would be translated as such and such thought me. Hmm. So one of the things I noticed about Icelandic was that it didn't talk about the inner life. It saw everything Mm, as exterior um, and coming into you from the outside. And I figured I had to put that into the Greenlanders, into the style that I wrote the Greenlanders in. Um, when I've done the historical novels that, I'd, that I've done, like Liddy Newton, I wanted to talk about 
I wanted to write in the same style that would be appropriate in the 1860s. So those those are aspects of being curious, um, of doing things that you never thought about when you were first starting out. Are, are you still going back to read a Jane Austen novel every free, few years? Sure. What yeah, did you read them. most recently? Um, probably it was Persuasion. It's been a couple of years, but thank you for reminding me. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's time to get back to it. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, considering women authors um, and considering books in general, I had always loved Middlemarch, and then I tried reading Felix Holt, The Radical, and I put it away, you know, after maybe a third of it. And then I decided to listen to it on uh, audio books. And the thing that blew me away, I really loved it on audio books. And the thing I hadn't realized about George Eliot was that she had a sense of humor and that she was quite witty. And so that's, that's one of the things I love about audio books is that you get to do it word by word. You get to hear it and understand it word by word. And there's, there's no skimming. And so I really like, I like, I really like audible books. I do too. I listen to more audiobooks than I ever expected I would. Mm-hmm. And I do experience <clears throat> the novel, especially a, a familiar writer in a different way, mm-hmm. listening to the audio version. Okay, I have, I have a last question for you. Um, I, I recently have asked three Minnesota writers for the literary character that they love most, that they identify as their favorite. <laughs> and I'm, I'm curious about what yours would be and why. Oh, I'm going to say Jeeves. <laughs> <laughs> this is from the P.G. Woodhouse novels? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, why? <laughs> Um, I, I don't know that I identify with him, but I, I, I love his way of knowing everything and being very kind in the way that he corrects Worcester and tells Worcester what to do. And, you know, I just, I'm not saying, I don't know if I identify with any character at this point, because I love so many characters. But um, the one that I connect with is Jeeves. <laughs> <laughs> that was a little unexpected. That's not what I thought yeah. you'd say. <laughs> Jane Smiley's new novel is called A Dangerous Business. Thank you so much for the, con- for the wide-ranging and unexpected <laughs> conversation. As always, when I talk with you, thank you. Well, it's lots of fun. <laughs>